Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 147, Crimean War, Part 7. Last time, we covered the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman. Today, we will cover the stalemate at the Siege of Sevastopol and the grave human suffering that went along with it. As I mentioned last episode, the weather in the Crimea began to deteriorate. What I failed to mention was the huge storm that struck the peninsula with gale-force winds that was to wreak havoc with both the ground forces and the sailors on the ships in the harbor. While the army was beaten down by the storm, the navy suffered far greater. Even in the supposed safety of the harbor, many a ship went down, and with it, the men on board. One of the ships that sank, the steamship Prince, lost 144 of the 150 men on board, and to make matters worse, 40,000 winter uniforms and boots went down with the ship as well. Now just imagine the suffering of the men in the trenches without winter clothing in the Crimea. Raglan, for his part, went into action and ordered one of his staff officers, Captain Weatherall, to go to Constantinople at once and purchase as many coats and warm clothing as possible with post-haste. Now, he had another problem, and it was food. But not getting the food, but getting it to the men in the field. The problem was the organization sent to deal with the distribution of rations and other needs of the soldiers was abominable. Then, as if they needed more problems, the three-mile road from the harbor to the front lines was almost completely impassable. The French were in far better shape. They lost fewer supplies to the storm, and their logistics were vastly superior to their British allies. In Trevor Royal's book on the Crimean War, he quotes one Fanny Duberly, a cavalryman's wife, who witnessed the horrible conditions of the British soldier. Quote, If anyone should ever wish to erect a model balaclava in England, I will tell him the ingredients necessary. Take a village of ruined houses and hovels in the extremest state of imaginable dirt. Allow the rain to pour into and outside them until the whole place is a swamp of filth ankle deep. Catch about, on an average, a thousand sick Turks with the plague and cram them into the houses indiscriminately. Kill about a hundred a day and bury them so to be scarcely covered with earth, leaving them to rot at leisure, taking care to keep up the supply. Onto one part of the beach drive all the exhausted bat ponies, dying bullocks, and worn-out camels, and leave them to die of starvation. They will generally do so in about three days, when they soon begin to rot and smell accordingly. Collect together from the water of the harbor all the offal of the animals slaughtered for the use of the occupants of above 100 ships, to say nothing of the inhabitants of the town, which together with an occasional human body, whole or in parts, and the driftwood of the wrecks, pretty well covers the water, and stew them all together in a narrow harbor, and you will have a tolerable imitation of the real essence of balaclava. By this time, the people back home in Great Britain were beginning to wonder whether the war was worth it. There were rumors, though, that the Austrians were going to join the effort against the Russians. Strangely, some of the British commanders were not entirely in favor of that, as would likely bring the Russians to the negotiating table, so they could not hope to fight against yet another European power. Then, all of the suffering of the men still in the trenches would be for naught. Still, there was talk of peace with Austria being at the head of it, 
The problem was the Russians, led by Tsar Nicholas, kind of liked the position they were in. They felt that the fortifications at Sevastopol were formidable enough to repulse any attack, and they were very aware of the suffering going on by the Allied troops. The Austrians wanted peace as they did not want to anger the Allies by not entering the war, but on the flip side, they really didn't want to piss off the Russians. The longer the war went, the less likely the Austrians could stay on the sidelines. The man at the forefront of peace negotiations was the Austrian, Count Buol Schauenstein. Buol had good relations with most of the parties involved, except the secretive English. They kept their intentions close to the vest, and the Austrians were concerned that the British had intentions to stay in the area once the war was over, threatening their Balkan holdings. This, of course, was to bring the two sides to war a little over a half-century later in World War I, so the concern was not unfounded. The only way the British could see the Austrians joining in the effort was to force the Turks to attack across the Proth River, which they believed would be met with an inevitable Russian military response. The problem was, the Turks, led by Omar Pasha, wouldn't be drawn into that trap. They were concerned that if they did so, the Austrians would become more powerful in the region and threaten them just as much as the Russians did. It was apparent that Austria was not going to be drawn into the Crimean War. The Allies decided to put out an olive branch to the Russians by asking them to agree to something known as the Four Points. First point. Russia was to give up its protectorate over the Danubian principalities, especially Serbia. Instead, the European powers would guarantee the people's protection. It was to abandon any claim granting it to the right to interfere in Ottoman affairs on behalf of Orthodox Christians. Again, the Europeans would guarantee their protection. Third item, the Straits Convention of 1841 was to be revised. And finally, there would be freedom for all to navigate the Danube. As you might have guessed, the Russians were unimpressed and didn't think twice about rejecting the agreement. The French and Turks were all for the treaty, but the British, they were lukewarm in their response. Clarendon felt that Austria had to get in on the war effort or back off the peace negotiations. Vienna had to show that they were serious to the British or else. But there was one problem for the Austrians, and that was whether the Prussians and their German allies would come to their aid should hostilities break out with the Russians. Now, do remember that many of the Russian czars were married to women from the German areas and the Prussian areas, and they were, you know, by that time, greater than 50% German themselves, so there was a little problem there. And it would be one thing if the Russians initiated the fighting, but it would be a wholly different ball of wax if the Austrians began it. Then the Prussians could easily back off their mutual agreements to protect each other, leaving the Austrians to fight on their territory alone. As I said before, the French were all for the peace treaties, but Austria must have looked at that with wary eyes. Now, if things went bad, they'd lose control of Italy, and the French would step in to gain influence there. But the French now had some complications of their own to deal with. They were on the brink of war, and this is something I learned that I never knew before. They were about to go to war with the United States. The U.S. Ambassador Pierre Soleil was fueling the embers of democracy in Madrid, when, which really threatened the French monarchy. Also, the U.S. was eyeing the territories of Cuba and Puerto Rico, and that concerned the Europeans, especially Great Britain. 
Now, Clarendon knew that if the French opened up hostilities against America, then they would be forced to take out much of their army from Crimea, fatally wounding the Allies there. Now, as you can imagine, seeing an opportunity to weaken their enemies, the Russian charge d'affaires, Alexandra Andreevich Bodisko, pushed the Americans to enlist their own citizens to raid British shipping and the French. Now, unfortunately for the Russians, Bodisko died suddenly before his plan could bear fruit. His replacement, Edouard de Stokel, continued pushing a more elaborate scheme. The Americans, now led by President Franklin Pierce, favored the Russians at the time, as they still viewed the Europeans led by the British with some hostility. They were far more hostile now to the French because of Napoleon III's despotic rule. This was made worse by the French refusing to allow the American diplomat Soleil entering their, from entering their country. Now, nothing eventually came of this, and the Americans did not get involved. But despite all of this, the Russians were finally persuaded to agree to the Four Points Agreement because of intervention of King Frederick Wilhelm IV of Prussia. But then, the British, not liking the deal, decided, with Napoleon's agreement, to ask that Sevastopol be destroyed as a fifth point and the entirety of the Russian fleet be scuttled. They knew that Nicholas would not stand for that. The conference in Vienna in 1854 was pretty much a sham, as it wasn't about reaching a peace agreement with Russia, but in trying to keep the alliance together against them. Then, late 18... 54 into 1855, the Allies got a major boost as King Victor Emmanuel II of Sardinia agreed to send 15,000 fresh troops into Crimea. After much haggling, they were placed under British command in return for a payment of £1 million. The reinforcements at the beginning of 1855 was much needed. The beginning of that year saw shakeups happening throughout the armies in the Crimea because of the poor uh, conditions and also the poor fighting that was going on. The British and French commanders, Raglan and Count Robert, were under increasing pressure to replace field commanders as well as being under assault at home themselves. The Russians were no different. Nicholas was under pressure to replace Menshikov. The general knew that he was in trouble and needed a victory in the field to save his job. So on February 8, 1855, he ordered a 19,000 man force under Lieutenant General Krulev to assault the town of Eupatoria and crush the Turkish force led by Omar Pasha. It was a total failure and fiasco. It was also to be the thing that many close to him would say would cause Tsar Nicholas to die of grief. Sick from a cold that was worsening, Nicholas heard of the defeat and went into deep depression. He had come down with the cold earlier, which should have been easily taken care of, but the Tsar decided to go against his doctor's wishes and reviewed a detachment of troops and the brutal cold of St. Petersburg before they were sent off to the Crimea. This worsened his condition, and on February 18th, he died a broken man. Now, there was hope on the Allied side that his son, the new Tsar, Alexander II, would sue for peace, but that was scuttled quickly when his first message to the conference in Vienna was that the Russians would, quote, perish rather than surrender. The Austrians, again, were leaning towards entering the war on the side of the Allies, but they were concerned about the behavior of the British and French, not knowing where they truly stood on things that mattered to the Austrians, namely the Balkans. 
The Turks now were beginning to voice their displeasure with the Four Points Agreement, as they didn't like the idea of the Europeans guaranteeing the safety of Orthodox Christians in their territory any better than the Russians making that claim. The whole Vienna Conference experience seemed to be unraveling, as none of the attendees were serious about peace. It seemed like the whole event was simply a ruse to force the Austrians to enter the war, as I said before. The deal fell through, so it was back to preparations for war. With winter abating and supplies beginning to pour into the Allied camp, the mood amongst the troops began to ever so slowly improve. But all around there were still grim reminders of the battle's past. There were bodies, or should I say skeletons, of men who fought, say, at the charge of the Light Brigade. And it was a sight so gruesome that the photographer sent there by Prince Albert couldn't bring himself to take the picture. But over the coming months, the British and French, along with their Sardinian allies, cleaned up the area around Balaclava. No more dead animal carcasses were laying around, having them all being towed into the sea. A Quaker from Liverpool, Philip Rathbone, had this to say about what he found in April of 1855. Quote, I have never seen a more lovely day. The very clouds that hung on the horizon only served to throw into relief the bright blue of the heavens, a blue such as we dream of when we speak of Italian skies, but never seen in England. In the distance lay our fleet mirrored in the still deeper azure of the Black Sea, and the same color is pure and deep in the harbor of Sevastopol, contrasted well with the brilliant white of the handsome buildings that surrounded it. Light puffs of smoke rose above different parts of the lines, and every now and then what seemed to be a little fleecy cloud would appear suddenly in the heavens. This was the bursting of a shell. Isn't that a big difference from the description I read earlier by Fanny Duberly? They finally got it. it. Took them a while, but the British and French finally figured out how to make it a more hospitable place to be. Now, in the background, negotiations were still underway to try to settle the conflict diplomatically, with minor changes being made back and forth in the main points of contention. Here it was, the British yet again disapproving of any peace initiative. So why may you ask? British stubbornness. They just couldn't sign a peace treaty without first winning the war. Because of the media and public opinion, the elected officials out there were scared that if they settled the conflict with Austria's help, they'd be voted out of office in disgrace. So all around Sevastopol, trenches were dug, similar to the trenches that were to be filled with men in Europe some 60 years later during World War I. For the men in them, it was a living hell. The Russians were, for the most part, in far better shape, with many living inside the walls of the fortified city, with others to the north in a line opposing the Allies. Then, on April 9th, the artillery shelling of Sevastopol began. For five days, the 138 British and 362 French artillery pieces hammered away at the fortifications. They were targeting three spots, the Flagstaff Bastion, the Mamelon, and the Redan. The first two suffered heavy damage, but the third, which was being targeted by the British, was only minimally damaged. Now, the plan, of course, was to send in infantry into the gaps caused by artillery, but it had to be a joint operation between the French and the British, and Ken Robert was unwilling to risk his men as he felt that not enough damage was done. After meeting on April 14th, it was decided not to mount a charge, 
but just continue bombarding the city. From here, each of the Allies began to develop their own ideas as how to proceed. All the Turks, they didn't want to supply any more men to help with this siege, preferring to mount another offensive against the Russians at Eupatoria, northwest of Sevastopol. This was to be a wise decision as it held down a large part of the Russian army to defend against an encirclement of their more southern troops. Canrobert Robert was being forced to listen to his superior, Emperor, Emperor Napoleon III, to attack the Russian lines to the northeast of Sevastopol. The British, they wanted to continue to put the pressure on the seaport city, concentrating all focus there. But Raglan was forced to accept the French and Turks' points, which gave the Russians a breather and allowed their man of the hour, Lieutenant Colonel Franz Eduard Todleben, to reinforce his battered walls. Todleben was a military engineer of exceptional talents. He had to overcome the stubborn, pick-headed Menshikov to accomplish what he did, but because of perseverance and strength of personality, he not only fortified the city, he made it almost impossible to attack effectively. Additionally, he created a new system of flying entrenchments, which allowed for the Russians to quickly reinforce walls damaged by artillery fire. This frustrated the Allies, as all their work at poking holes in the fortifications seemingly were for naught. Another problem the Allies were facing was this lack of infantry follow-up after a hole had been created. As Arthur Henry Taylor said, quote, What annoys and distresses everyone is that all was for no defined object, as the army were not prepared to storm the town. We say here that we did not take Sebastopol because the French would not fight by day, the English would not fight in the dark, and the Turks, oh, they won't fight at all. This lack of infantry attack even befuddled the Russians. Not that they had a problem with it, but it caught them by surprise. Another thing that the Russians were happy about was the relatively low casualty rate on their side. While they did have some, it was far less than that suffered by the Allies. While the British and French were pounding the walls, with some shells flying into the city from time to time, the Russians aimed their artillery fire on the troops on the other side, sometimes inflicting horrific damage. Over time, a large number of non-commissioned officers of the Allies were killed or wounded, leading to new, less experienced men to be put in their place. Then the issue of who was the lead nation in the Crimean War came to the forefront, as the French had by mid-1855, far more men than the British, and Canrobert tried to begin to increase his influence during those planning sessions with Raglan. But the British commander was a far shrewder and more powerful presence than his French counterpart, and that created a lot of tension between the two. On top of it, you had the meddlesome Napoleon III interjecting his point of view time after time, countermanding his own general's plans. Then a new plan was hatched to attack the port at Kirsch, an ancient town inhabited by man since around the 15th to 17th century BC. The French would send a fleet led by Admiral Bruat to attack the city with the British sending in 8,500 infantry. It was a bold plan, but, if successful, would shut off the main supply line for the men in Sevastopol. Defeating the Russians here would have been a major blow at that time and would have surely hastened the end of the war. Except for one tiny detail. It didn't happen as planned. 
Here again, the meddlesome Napoleon sent a telegram to headquarters via the new telegraph line just installed that was able to give him the ability to go from Paris, send a message from Paris to Constantinople rather quickly. And he said, now, camera bearer, you're going to be bringing up reserve troops up from Constantinople, and the ships that Bruat was about to use to assault Kirsch were needed for the transport. Two hours before the attack was to start, it was called off, much to the anger of the British. Partly due to this, Camrobert tended his resignation on May 16th of 1855. He knew that his reputation had taken a fatal blow, and he could not recover from that. Instead, he asked to stay in the Crimea and be given leadership of a combat unit. In his place, General Jean-Jacques Pellissier was given overall command of the French troops. As Colonel Hugh Rose of the British described him, quote, General Pellissier will never allow a half and half execution of his orders. If it can be done, it must be done. He is of a violent temper and rough manner, but I believe him to be just and sincere, and I think that in all important matters, these two qualities will triumph over his ebullitions of temper. He has a quick conception, plenty of common sense, and a resolute mind, which thinks of overcoming, not yielding to difficulties. Well, join me next time as we wrap up the Crimean War and prepare to move on. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to visit the blog site at www.russianrulers.history.com. And while you're there, if you can, donate to the podcast to help cover the expenses. Additionally, don't forget to stop by Facebook and join us at Russian Rulers History, because I'm now asking for some suggestions as to what to do on episode 150. I want to do something a little special. I'm getting some great ideas from the listeners. Thank you very much. So now, as always, Das Vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.